And welcome to a special bonus episode of Full Metal RPG. I'm joined by Ryan Schoon of Lore Master Games. Ryan, Hello. how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you for asking. So uh, why don't you introduce yourself, tell us a little about you and, and uh, where you got started with gaming and role-playing. Okay, well, um, I've been gaming uh, actually most of my life, um, you know, back in... In the old um, Star Wars D6 day, actually, was the first role-playing game I ever played. And it just kind of started an obsession with me. I kind of played any, anything I could play. Um, I, I would check out game books from the library and make characters for games that I didn't really have anyone to play with. I would just make... Oh, man, your library had game books? We did. We actually did. We had a few. I, re- I remember specifically... Um, I was probably 12 or 13 and I checked out Call of Cthulhu from the library, the role-playing game, and oh, brought man. it home and my mom read it and immediately made me take it back and exchange it. So <laughs> That's awesome. It's a fun little story. Yeah, that is. That's great. And that was the old West End game, Star Wars, right? That, uh, yeah, that was like the, one of the first role-playing games I ever owned and ran for anybody. Yeah, same. That that was a, a classic. I still have my copy. It's, it was a great system. Yeah. Cool. And so um, you're here to specifically to talk to us about your um, your new game that went live on Kickstarter on March 20th, Tuesday. Uh, Gears of Defiance, right? That's, that's right. Yeah, Gears of Defiance. It's one I've been working on for some time. So. Yeah, I saw that you've been working on that for a couple of years. You want to just give us a quick rundown on what that is, what it's about? Yeah, it's um, it's a game about the bonds of family standing up against oppression. It is a, a steampunk game, um, and I've always loved the idea of steampunk, but I wanted to take it a little deeper to the actual, you know, punk elements of steampunk. Um, so that's what I tried to do here. And the game pits an underdog, basically this family that is oppressed, um, living under this evil empire. That treats them like second-class citizens, restricts their rights, takes away um, things they need to live. And you play as those characters um, having to kind of find your way in this world and figure out what role you're going to play in this resistance movement um, that kind of picks up speed as the campaign goes along. Oh, cool. Yeah, the ultimate goal, of course, of the game is to uh, destabilize the Empire. Um, and however you choose to do that is going to be completely up to the players, really. Right. And um, it seemed like there was kind of a fair amount of collaboration and back and forth between the, the I'll call them the games master and the players, um, about that empire and the setting. Um, what, is, is that an accurate assessment? Yeah, I'd say there is a little bit more collaboration than maybe some gamers are used to. But if you're familiar with games like Fate or Apocalypse World, it's kind of modeled after that level of interaction, whereas in Fate, you can kind of work with the GM to create inventive ways out of situations, um, to to bring in NPCs and things like that to come to your aid. And you kind of have that same freedom in Gears of Defiance. Oh, okay, cool. And you and you listed a lot of your influences as like Les Miserables and The Last Exile, things yeah, like that. Yeah, right? as, as far as thematic influences, definitely. I, le- I read a bunch, you know, a bunch of literature 
um, set about revolutions or resistances, both real life and I've always been a fan of the concept in fiction. Um, you know, mm-hmm. things like Star Wars, basically, or The Hunger Games. Right. Um, and you mentioned Last Exile, you know. These are stories of underdogs rising up against, you know, this powerful, oppressive force. Right, yeah, kind of like dystopias, right? Yeah, kind of, but, you know, it's. I don't want to use the word dystopian for Gears because mm-hmm. it, it doesn't have to be. You can play a dystopian, post-apocalyptic campaign where the Empire has come out of the rubble and controls the world, but... You know, it doesn't, it doesn't have to be a, a dystopia. You know, for a lot of people, they might be perfectly happy with, with the Empire and the, and the way the Empire is benefiting them. But for the players' characters, you know, things aren't so great, right? Um, right. And, uh, you know... Yeah, it sounds similar to kind of like 1984 as well. It, it can be that as well. And, and that's the thing is, what I wanted to do is give the players the tools to kind of create the setting they want. And there's a whole... Um, chapter called the founding session which sets up the game and lets you kind of talk with the GM about what kind of game you want to play do you it, heavy sci-fi light sci-fi super realistic magic no magic supernatural stuff like you get to go through all these and kind of create your campaign um, yourself or you can grab one of the pre-made settings and just get right into playing oh cool so it's kind of like a toolkit approach then Right. You're kind of giving people like tools to build their own. Okay, neat. And, and was that something that you felt was missing from other games? Um, because I mean, uh, th- that theme of revolution runs through a number of other games. Um, sure. But it seems like you're, you're more focused on it and you're, and you're looking to bring something that people don't get out of other systems. Right. I mean, this, this game is definitely focused on that revolution. It, it's a sandbox in a way. But your goal throughout the campaign is to bring down the Empire. You know, you're going to be going on side quests, maybe some errands, like, you know, some of the traditional stuff that you do in a role-playing game based on who the GM is. You know, you might have to go clear the rats out of the sewer, you know, but it's but that's not, you know, you're, you're not doing that just to do it, right? Everything you do in the game, every step you take forward is one step that to destabilize the Empire. Um, whether that's building a network of contacts, um, trying to find a way to get inside the castle undetected, you know, trying to pay off the right guard or steal the right uniform or um, Im- impair the technology, however you can do it. Oh, okay, cool. Um, and so I I know that that you, yeah, steampunk's your favorite genre, and you actually have another one of your games, Adara, that's also a steampunk setting. Um, how do you feel that steampunk specifically facilitates telling these these types of stories? Well, that's that's one thing I kind of actually drew from Adara, and I loved um, the steampunk aesthetic that I brought to Adara. But it was just that it was an aesthetic, and I notice in a lot of uh, steampunk media, um, it is just an aesthetic. It is let's make this mm-hmm. look steampunk, but it doesn't feel steampunk right and so i'm really proud of the classic glue gears on it and call it steampunk right that's it exactly um i'm a big fan of that still you know and i love what we did with adara but adara was a dungeon crawling game it has political things it has some things like that but at the end of the day it's more of a crunchy um adventure style game and while i was designing that with um my co-designer i just kind of had these other ideas just kind of percolating in the back of my head and after Adara was out, I kind of started talking about these other ideas with people. 
and then Gears of Defiance kind of took shape out of that. So I think it is different from a lot of steampunk games in there in that it's not about, um, you know, the steampunk. It's about the punk, right? I guess that's the emphasis on punk and on the steam. Um, even the level of steampunk technology that you bring into your game is completely up to you. You can run just a complete, like, Victorian, low-tech, industrial revolution, even, like, setting um, with these rules. It doesn't have to be inherently steampunk, but I think it works best with that kind of um, setting. Okay, cool. That sounds great. Um, and, and I noticed you talked about uh, peaceful protest versus violence against the oppressor, the empire. Um, does that kind of dynamic, that, that dichotomy, play an important role in the game, and how does the game facilitate that? I see. Yeah, that is actually um, one of the core sources of drama in the game, is that you're going to get characters that want to go one way or the other, um, and you're going to get a GM that's, you know, GM kind of controls everything else that's going on in the world. So if there's a really peaceful kind of revolution happening and some of the player characters want to kind of stir the pot, it's going to cause some problems um, within the family and outside of the family in the way they interact with people. And so one thing I wanted to, to put in here, um, it's, it, we call it the alignment matrix. And what mm -hmm. this does, it tracks the way that you are your character is seen by the people of the Empire and whether or not they're going to be sympathetic towards you or not. And you kind of move um, from like traditional over to radical or from liberty to authority. And people are right. going to react to you differently based on how they perceive you. Um, sometimes in positive, you know, some people might actually respond more positively to you if they see you as a radical. And some people might respond more positively towards you if they see you as a new authority that they can line up behind. Um, but that's all going to depend on what the, like the mood of the empire is. Right. And the empire can kind of nudge people's perceptions of you into different categories, right? Depending on, on their moves. Definitely. There's, or, yeah, at the end of a session or two or however the, the GM decides to break up the action, um, there is a season phase. And during the season phase, the uh, player characters get to look over at, at what territory they control, what locations they might have conquered, and they get access to certain abilities. But the Empire still gets to leverage the things it still has in its control. And some of those would be bringing in more troops and locking down the city um, or the whole Empire. And then others would be you know, propaganda, um, trying to change the way the public views these uh, rebels, basically. Right, the kind of the old classic, like Soviet-style posters smeared up on the walls, or have you seen this person see something, say something type of stuff? Basically, right. Just whatever they can do to paint a negative image onto the, the player characters. Okay, cool. Um, and so assuming that, that this is true, the Empire can propagandize against you or your players head down the path of violence, is it possible for the player characters to become the villains? Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it definitely is possible. And that's, that's what the, the matrix does. Um, and you know, you as a character might not set out to do this, but as you, uh, make decisions, um, you know, you'll notice you're moving a certain way on this alignment track and advancement of your character is tied into this track. So you want to keep your character moving. Um, that creates drama that lets you advance your character in other ways, but you can absolutely start moving onto the radical track, start moving onto the authority track, and next thing you know, you're a tyrant. You know, and, and you're you've got your own little personal army, 
and maybe you're just trying to burn everything down and rule the ashes, right? In which case, right. you're definitely the villain. You've become the villain at that point. Not in your own eyes, but definitely in the eyes of the people around you. Oh, for sure. Okay, so it sounds like it kind of there may even be a third faction really there's the the family or the or the empire and then there's the people and how they perceive you yeah okay great um and that kind of also plays into that that theme of revolutions have a tendency to eat their children um does that does that come up in the game is there a, a a way for the revolution to swing out of your control and essentially uh cannibalize the player characters yeah, I mean that can that can definitely happen. It, it all depends on, you know, the story the GM is trying to tell within the story, right? Um, and that's mm-hmm. something that you set up when you're building the world. You know, is the the NPCs and everything, um, and so it can get out of control really fast, right? Especially if you have a very violent rebellion. Um, it doesn't happen as much so with peaceful protests, but it definitely can if you have two factions within the city both trying to do things their own way one of those factions is most likely going to destroy the other one right okay and they kind of rise up against each other even have the the children of the revolution rise up against you the architects of the revolution and kind of down you in your in your hubris i guess (laughs) cool yeah Um, that's basically right yeah. Um, is there anything else that you, that you'd like that you really want people to know, or you'd like people to know about about the game? Yeah, I mean, I think obviously that it's unique, and I, I've put a lot of hours and a lot of passion into it. Um, I think the way that we handle the creation of the world is not something you're going to see um, too much. I, I like games that come with built-in settings, um, but then there are games like Apocalypse World or Dungeon World, which where you kind of create things as you go along. Um, you kind of build the world collaboratively together as you play. And this kind of falls a little bit in between that, um, where you're kind of going to set the bones of the world uh, before you start playing. Or like I mentioned earlier, grab one of those pre-made settings, throw that down, and then you're going to have the bones of the world. But then you kind of fill that in um, as you play the game. And so you're, everybody that plays the game is going to come out with a completely different setting um, even if there are two groups using the same pre-made setting, the way they build that family is going to look completely different. And so I, that's what I think is really cool. Um, I've been playtesting this game for two years, taking it to countless conventions, and I've never seen two groups create a setting that was even close to similar. Like, it, it's it's pretty interesting to see once you start following the way the book asks questions and you start asking those questions to the players... And you start to see their eyes light up and, and the ideas flicker in their mind as they, you know, they start coming up with this world together. It's a really cool experience. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's really fascinating because there is that whole idea of that, you know, you have anarchists, you've got populist movements, you've got, um, you know, just straight up more radical kind of movements. Um, and different players may have different ideas of what constitutes an effective revolution. Um, have you ever had any where they just where there were just like two really strong uh, players who kind of refused to see eye to eye? I mean, yeah, we well, not players. I actually I have not had that happen, but I have. Had I guess players, characters, right? I have had players play characters that were, and that's um, one of the sessions I played um, at uh, Metatopia, which is a playtest convention. These two guys, really great friends in real life, but they decided to pit their characters against them uh, each other for fun. And they played brothers. One was a priest, one was a soldier, who just had 
complete opposite. Like they just butted heads on everything they tried to do. Um, but you know, from the player's point of view, they were doing it to cause drama and have a little bit of fun. Um, hopefully the GM can intervene before it actually reaches, you know, players, um, butting yeah. heads specifically. But you know, that's the, the thing when you play a game like this is there's going to be drama and conflict between your characters. You know, the whole point of the GM is to put characters in tough positions. Um, you're going to have to betray your ideals. You may have to betray your friends and family or suffer the consequences, right? And then maybe your family will come and get you out of that. And that's just kind of as the campaign unfolds, you're going to have more and more of these issues. Okay, cool. And and I know you've mentioned fate and apocalypse worlds as as uh, influences in your kind of your divine pro- or your design process. Um, and I know that that PBTA players can be very opinionated about the quote-unquote right way to play those games. Um, can you kind of briefly touch on the the differences between what you're doing and like a straight up just powered by the apocalypse game? Sure, and, and you know, and I, funny enough, I've mentioned this um, in other places, but the idea for this kind of came out of Apocalypse World, right? I, I really, I do love Apocalypse World and what it does. Um, and I started off, you know, making playbooks and things like that and trying to figure out the moves for Apocalypse World. But it was a little, it was a little too free for what I wanted mm-hmm. it to be, which I, I tried to put limits on it. And it just eventually ended up growing up in, into this new thing, right? Um, so you can still have the, feel the bones of Apocalypse World uh, mixed in there, but it's definitely its own thing. Okay, cool. Um, and what's kind of just, can you briefly or, or go in, not necessarily briefly, but can you go into your, your approach to game development and design? I know a lot of people are very interested in it, um, particularly in this new era where there's a lot more community involvement in the process. Um, so could you kind of yeah. talk about that a little bit? There was definitely community involvement in this. Basically, when I started this, all I had was just an idea. Um, and I talked to a couple other game designers that I happen that I'm lucky enough to know. Um, and you know, if you're out there and you don't know anybody, like if you don't know people in the industry and you want to start doing game design, go to these conventions, um, meet people, talk to them. You know, I find that people in this industry are more than willing, you know, as long as it's not, you're not asking for a lot of their time, but to just chat a little bit, you know, and you never know where one of those conversations will go. And Having that guidance at the beginning um, was great. And that was where, you know, we talked about it in a whole group and kind of like, well, how would this work with Apocalypse World? And then when I started working on it and realized it didn't work, I brought it to other friends and said, look at this. Tell, you know, I don't think this is working in Apocalypse World. Do you agree? And they looked at it and said, yeah, I don't think it's working either. And I've had different people at different steps of the way that I've taken these designs to and said, tell me if you think this part works. Tell me if you think that part works. Um, and I took it to conventions and I went to a convention and said, I'm just testing this mechanic at this convention, or I'm just testing this other mechanic, or I'm just testing the world creation at this convention. And so I tested all these little individual parts to make sure the parts worked and then kind of started putting them together. And the thing about role-playing games and, and any kind of media like this is that, you know, somebody's going to have already done the thing you're trying to do. Right. And there's, there's nothing wrong with borrowing it, right? Like, I was looking for a cool way to build dice pools and I started rereading through Fate Accelerated and it kind of took me back to playing that game and how exciting I thought the approaches were. And I said, well, you know, I could use approaches just like Fate Accelerated does, right? And I could do 
heists kind of blades in the dark already figured this out. I'm going to borrow what works from those systems and put it into my own. So I think having a knowledge of these games, playing these games, reading these games helps because you're going to get stuck on something and you're going to say, I don't know how to handle this situation, but I guarantee somebody out there has already figured out a, a fluid way of handling that. You just have to find it. Yeah, for sure. And then, it, you know, and it sounds like for you, just having that community of gamers around you that you could bounce ideas off of or, or play test with was really integral and, and important. Yeah, yeah, that's really cool. Definitely. Cool. Um, I see you also worked on Star Trek Adventures. <laughs> uh, I, yeah, I did. I do some some contract work for Modiphius on Star Trek and uh, Infinity, which is another game line of theirs. Oh, cool. So, I mean, those are both settings with really deep lore and and history and a fan base um sometimes they can be a little fanatical uh versus um gears of defiance <laughs> which is you're you're creating your own thing from scratch so what's the kind of advantage disadvantage of each well I'll, i mean i'll tell you the advantage of something like star trek um and, and when i've run this at conventions is that everybody already knows it right everybody knows star trek even people that don't really know star trek um, or have never even seen Star Trek, still know what it's like. So when right, I sit down at a convention, <laughs> yeah, when I sit down at a convention, I say, "You're the captain. You're the engineer. You're the you know security officer." People go, "Oh, this is clicking in my head." They can get into character really fast, and you know it feels like you're playing in an episode of Star Trek. Now, working with any intellectual property like that does have that. You're always a little worried, like, how are people going to take this adventure? You know, how are fans going to react to this thing of canon that we might have? slipped in there or mentioned or, or this character we might have mentioned you know how like how is this going to play out and but you know in general um you can't worry about that right you can't really worry about the fan reaction um because there's always going to be somebody that hates everything you do and you just kind of have to accept that fact um yeah. but working working with an i like without an ip like on something original like gears of defiance it's a harder sell because people don't know it they don't there's no huge property behind it there's nothing pushing it forward um so you really have to show them how it works and why it works and get them interested in the themes um because you don't have that that recognizable name you know to put out there but on the flip yeah, side so you're not you got a little any- more upfront buy-in yeah but you're not gonna have anybody at the end of the day saying well this isn't like how i imagined it because nobody everybody came into it with a fresh perspective yeah or or that's not how that phaser works or that's not how what that ship would be named or something like that Yeah. yeah. Have you ever run across any any of that type of situation where somebody who just had a much deeper knowledge of the of the um, setting than you tried to effectively like uh, gateway you or, or knowledge check you? You know, I have had people do that. Um, well, not not that bad. No, actually, like I've had I've run games with people that were far more knowledgeable. But when you're a GM, you, you know you have to kind of recognize that at the table with any of these IP games, um, be it Firefly, Star Trek, Infinity, anything. You have to play into that. And I found myself like, you know more about Star Trek than I do, and I just flat out admitted that. And I was like, so what do you think this would look like, right? In Star Trek, like how do you think this would happen? You kind of throw it back at them, and I think that kind of meets them where they're at. And so they. Okay. At least I've never had the bad experience of somebody trying to correct me or talk over me because I usually, you know, you look at them like, correct me if I'm wrong. Like when you give them the option, like, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's this or that. And they can say, actually, it's not, you know, but you are in control of that conversation, right? 
Right. Yeah. And I think that's kind of gets at that, that core conceit of narrative versus, you know, trad gaming or, or rules gaming where it's, you know, if you have a narrative approach, it's more collaborative like that, uh, as opposed to the rulesy approach where, you know, you have the, you're handing it down from on high. Yeah, basically. And cool. I'm fine with that. I like that. Oh yeah, I'm fine with it too. I really like narrative style role playing as well. I, I think it's uh, it's been really transformative to the genre. It seems kind of like there's so a too. weird. Oh yeah, go ahead. No, I, I just saying I agree with you. Yeah, I think there's kind of like a, a, a I don't know. It's kind of like a tension between the OSR and the narrative camps, almost in a way, um, which which has always kind of seemed a little <laughs> strange to me. There, there are, I, I'll say this about any kind of political situation, and I'm not going to, I don't want to talk too much about that particular <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. rift, but, you know, there are extremists on every side of every political debate. Uh, there are plenty of us that are right in the middle that are perfectly happy playing both, working on both, writing both, designing both. I know plenty, plenty of people that, that go to the far extreme ends of both, and they write completely light, fluffy story-driven, completely narrative games, and then like the crunchiest games you've ever seen at the same time. And so I think, you know, I think that for me personally, I, I've done, I mean, I've, I've done both myself, but Gears, it's still a little more crunchy than some of these systems you'll find out there. Um, There's still the building of the dice pools, tracking successes and things like that. But, you know, I, I, I love both types of systems i'm never gonna yeah. complain about it you know yeah role-playing kind of has its own alignment matrix <laughs> uh cool um so you're doing this through kickstarter which is cool and and from watching kickstarter and just kind of participating in it over the last few years myself it seems like it's been really uh disruptive and or empowering uh as a force for indie development and and indie game designers uh what are your thoughts on the trajectory of the industry in this in this post Kickstarter world and the benefits and the drawbacks of that? So the industry, I mean, it's it's probably first of all a much smaller industry than anybody really thinks it is. <laughs> you know, um, there's the big you know the big three companies like you know Paizo, Hasbro, uh, or sorry, Wizards, um, and then um, Shadowrun. I guess D and D Shadowrun and Pathfinder. But like for everybody else, we're competing over like a really small chunk of the pie that's left. And so Kickstarter has been a huge help for, for us, for anybody that's kind of an indie developer, um, which would be really anything smaller than those games. A lot of us could not do what we do without Kickstarter or Patron or things like that. Now, it is interesting as um, I'm seeing bigger companies are starting to get back into publishing role-playing games. Um, I mean, Cubicle 7 has several lines that have been getting more and more successful every year. And Renegade is is launching their first big RPG, Overlight, later this year. So I think all eyes are kind of on that right now to see how is this going to work as a mass market book coming from a, you know, some, a, a non-recognizable name in a brand new IP. And that's kind of, I think, what might change the game a little bit. Um, is seeing a bigger publisher like Renegade take a risk on a role-playing game. That might draw people away from Kickstarter. You know, if, if you can get the publisher backing from a big company like that that believes in your idea and wants to publish that book, then, you know, it might change the way we do business. But for right now, I think everybody is loving what Kickstarter allows us to do. 
Yeah, for sure. It seems like the bigger companies that, to your point, have have really taken an interest in Kickstarter. There's been a couple large ones that have kicked off for for some 5e companion books that, in particular, that I think probably got the notice of someone over at, at Wizards slash Hasbro. Right. Um, so when you're putting something on Kickstarter, is there ever kind of any, at that moment, I guess, of, of, uh, of wariness about what if I, what if I come up with something that really hits and now suddenly I'm going to have to come up with all these additional content or <laughs> these additional reward levels. I'm kind of specifically why... thinking about like kingdom death with this one. Cause well, that yeah, like so seemed like it came of, out of nowhere. A lot of games, uh, especially it's more so with board games for sure. Mm-hmm. I, I've seen a lot of companies get into that trap. Um, and I saw Ninja division just basically said, we're not doing Kickstarter anymore because it's too easy for us to fall into that trap. Now, I don't know if, I don't know how I feel about that. I feel like there are ways to avoid it, but you get into that hype machine, you start promising content, um, and unless you're like Simon, it's really hard to meet all of that, the crazy stretch goals, and, and usually people undervalue their stretch goals. Um, it happens sometimes in, in role-playing game world too, but that's why for like Years of Defiance, I'm reaching out to people in the industry to act as stretch goals for me. Um, if I promised a new setting for every stretch goal and we ended with 15 or 20 extra settings, I kinda, I'd be on the hook to create 20 extra settings and about the third or fourth setting, I'd probably be so burned out on them I could not come up with a new idea to save my life. <laughs> but yeah. by getting people that are talented and skilled that can just come in and do one major huge setting that they can put all their creativity and thought into, I benefit first of all because I have all of these people helping me out but then the audience benefits because they're gonna they're not gonna get a bunch of derivative settings that I wrote like with a fortune cookie generator. You know, they're gonna get these unique custom made settings from from great writers in the industry. And so I'm really excited about presenting that to them. And I think for us at least, we can do all that at once. You know, when you have ten or twenty people contributing as stretch goals, you can send out a project to all twenty of them and say, I need this work in a month. But if you have one guy trying to do it all, it's going to take forever, you know? Oh, yeah. That's that mythical man month problem, right? Where you get right. you get nine, nine, nine people pregnant and try to have a baby in a month. Does that work? Right. Yeah. So, so it sounds like you're kind of just like about keeping the quality level up by, by uh, reaching out to a support network, which I dig. I think that's really cool. Yeah. Cool. And... um. Also with Kickstarters, it seems like a lot of them suffer from kind of this post-funding slump uh, where they get their initial round of funding. They're like, hey, cool, uh, we got everything. And then they just go dark for a long period of time um, or the opposite end of the spectrum where they just kind of like spam your mailbox incessantly. <laughs> uh, is there a balance and, and how do you find that balance? Um, well, the way I find that balance is, first of all, by relying on a publisher that has done this 10 other times. Um, <laughs> it, it is a hard balance to do. And you'll notice there's always a, a slump um, right after funding. Like, you do really great in the mm-hmm. first 48 hours, um, which we did. We funded in 12 hours, which was really exciting. But then, yeah, you get that slump. And then as a creator, the first thing you want to do is spam, spam, spam. Let's get this in front of everyone. Let's make sure everyone knows it's out there. But I've been working with Alan um, from Gallant Knight Games, who are known for Tiny Frontiers, Cold Shadows, um, Tiny Dungeons. They've done a ton of Kickstarter campaigns. And, you know, Alan's the one, like, saying, relax, relax. Like, this is normal. You just kind of got to pull it back and keep a regular update schedule. 
Um, you don't want to spam people's email inboxes. You don't want to spam social media. Like just relax. You know, and that's what we're kind of, we've spread out um, a couple podcast interviews like this one, um, some live plays and things like that. We've kind of spread them out over the course of the campaign so that I, I don't want anybody to feel like we're bashing them over the head with content, you know? Yeah, cool. Well, we're happy to be, to, you know, be part of your efforts. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm, I'm glad to be on too. I'm glad you guys took the time to interview. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, we're, we're, we are more than happy to have you on and, and talk to you. It, it seems really like a really neat setting and a really neat game and, and something that's unique I haven't really seen before. Um, so once you funded and, and you've gotten, you know, your, your Kickstarter and it's been successful, how do you keep yourself motivated to deliver? Like when you hit those doldrums, how do you work through them? Because I've seen a, a number of them come in just like, like almost comedically late. Um, and it's just it's it's it seems like it's there's some kind of a, of a difficult or there there's like a a built-in difficulty there getting it to completion. There is. Um, I so I did a, you know those those Adara books um, when I did the the Traveler's Guide to Adara that was uh, a one-man show. Um, I had you know helped doing the design work and the, and some of the writing, but then when it came to layout printing. Um, fulfillment. I did all that by myself. And let me tell you, it is ridiculously difficult to keep yourself on task, to keep yourself organized, scheduled and things like that when you're just one guy. And again, I'm going to throw it back to my publisher, Gallant Night Games, and why I wanted to do this with them. Because I looked at my performance, I guess I want to say, during the Adara Kickstarter and just how long it took me to get the rewards fulfilled. Um, You know, it wasn't awfully long, but it took me about a year. It was about a year late after all the extra writing I'd had to end up doing and all the layout and all the graphic design and everything. Um, it was about a year late and I said, I don't want that to happen again. I need someone who's done this before, someone who knows how to handle this and someone who's like somebody else there just to keep you motivated, right? It doesn't hurt at all to have somebody in your uh, messages or your inbox saying, hey, how far are you along on this particular thing? Or here's your deadline for this particular thing. And they're going to hold you accountable to that deadline. I would say for anybody, it's you need that. It's very difficult to just be self-motivated. Like you, after a Kickstarter, all you want to do is take a break or a little vacation, but that's when the hard work really starts. Yeah, for sure. And and like I said, that's just something I've seen kind of a, a pattern that's repeated itself as a number of these things, like you said, just coming in a year late, two years late. Um, and just kind of, yeah, I was wondering about your method for motivating yourself. So it sounds like you've stumbled on one that works, which is great. Yeah, I think so. Cool. Um, and then kind of once you've you've done the Kickstarter and you've delivered it uh, and people have that product in their hands, um, how do you keep up momentum for the games after that? Like, how do you uh, keep up interest or keep it in front of people or fresh in, in people's mind? Yeah, you've got to. And, and one way that, you know, the bigger games can do this because they have huge teams and they can do supplements, expansions and things like that that come out like every six months to a year, which is great right. because it keeps people in front of it. Um, it's a lot harder for an indie game, to be honest. You know, most indie games, um, you'll, you know, they'll come out and, you know, you'll get a lot of popularity um, and then it just kind of people forget about it. And I think really the only way you can combat that is by just consistently having it available at conventions, um, having people running it at every convention you can get people to run at. There's a program called Games on Demand where you can mm-hmm. basically send GMs to a convention to as part of this program 
and they will run games for people and people can pick a game. And if you make sure that, you know, Gears of Defiance is on some of those lists, people are going to see it. You're going to reach new viewers that way or, you know, new, new eyes that way. And it's a tough, it's tough to keep people in the market excited about something. And you see this in the whole gaming industry, you know, uh, the hottest board game can come out and then six months later, nobody's even talking about it anymore. And it's even worse for role-playing games, especially indie press. It's, you just have to keep active, keep your social media active, keep tweeting. You know, you can't stop doing those updates and things like that once the Kickstarter's done. You have to keep people engaged. And hopefully, if you are planning on continuing the line or doing expansions or a second book, hopefully you can keep up that interest up until that point and then kick off a new cycle. Yeah, for sure. That That's kind of matched with what I've seen with a lot of games where they kind of have this initial flurry of activity and then you just kind of see them recede. And it's, you know, if they're not, you know, if they're not in your local game store, they're not published via traditional method. Um, it, it's hard to get your hands on them at times, uh, it, you know, and they'll come out with even additional supplements to your point, like what you said. And, and you won't know about them unless you're kind of locked into the Kickstarter world and, and you know that it's coming out or they send you an email about it, right? Right. That's basically like drive through RPG has tools built in that anybody that can, you know, that buys your things, um, you can kind of send them emails and that, that's not something you want to abuse, but mm-hmm. it's there. Cool. Have you, um, have you put any of your stuff on the, the print on demand on drive through RPG at all? Yeah. Um, both my Adara books are on there and the, uh, you can find the Gears of Defiance ash can on there as well, which is actually um, something we're giving away to uh, all the backers for free, at least a digital copy of that ash can. Um, but yeah, I still use so use it for all that stuff. Oh, cool. Um, how have you how have you found the quality of the print on demand stuff? Do you like it? Um, you know, actually, I do. You're not going to get the same quality, of course, that you get with an <laughs> established like a, a physical printer, but. I've never, I have never had a problem with with my books. Um, aside from printing errors that you know we had to get fixed along the way and things like that, um, I, I use it. I know several people that use that as a primary source. When you're doing a really small print run like we did for Adara, which was like a hundred copies um, that you're that you're going to take with you from convention to convention, you know it's just easier to handle it that way than to try to get a you know. A huge print order, which some of these companies require, like print orders of 250, 500 books and things like that. So it's it's definitely much easier to do print on demand. Um, and I've never had enough of a, like any real complaints about the quality of my books. Oh, cool. Yeah, that's awesome. That's good to hear. Um, so is there anything else you'd like our listeners to know? Any any plugging you want to do? <laughs> I mean, other than telling them to go check out the Kickstarter, for sure. Um, we're going to be, uh, if they go to the Kickstarter page and uh, take a look through the updates, uh, you'll kind of see the schedule of events of, of what we're going to be doing for Gears of Defiance. Uh, you know, you're listening to this podcast already out there, so thank you for listening, which is great. And I'm going to be doing a live QA on the, face, uh, on the Kickstarter page, directly on the page next week. So if people are listening this week and they want to come check out that live Q&A, maybe you have some questions that you can't ask me right now because this is just a podcast. Save those questions, come to the live Q&A, and and feel free to ask me anything. Okay. Uh, Do you have a rough idea what day that'll be? Yeah, it's going to be next Tuesday at 3 p.m. Eastern. 
3 p.m. Eastern next Tuesday and Eastern for the weird states like Arizona who don't observe daylight savings time. You guys are observing daylight savings time, right? Right. We are, yeah. So yeah. yeah. So, well, it'll be so 3 p.m. Eastern. So yeah. Factor that so in. Factor that Put in. in your converter. Eastern cool. time, 3 p.m. 3 p.m. Okay, and it's Gears of Defiance is the Kickstarter from Lore Master Games. Yep, and it, and it is a narrative tabletop role-playing game that explores themes of oppression, resistance, and family set against an industrial stream po- steampunk background. Cool. Well, Ryan, yep. thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. I appreciate it. No problem. And, I'm uh, glad to be on the show. Thank you for doing this. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for being here, and I really look forward to, to seeing your stuff out there and, and watching this game as it develops. I'm, I'm thank you jazzed. very much. <laughs> cool. Well, thank you very much, and have a good night.